the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Back America, I'm Hugh Hewitt. Inside the Beltway this morning, I'm so glad you joined me. I want to talk with you about this book, David Brooks's brand new How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen. David joins me now. Hello, David. How are you? It's good to be with you again. It's good to talk to you. David, I am, um, I'm used to getting books, and I got yours for free. They get sent to me. I want to tell you I'm going to buy six copies of How to Know a Person, three for my children and their spouses, and three for friends who are no longer friends that I want them to read. I wonder if you've had other people tell you that they're going to be buying your book to give to other people. Yeah, uh, thank you for being generous on Twitter about the book. I appreciate it. Yeah, no, I've had people buy it for all their employees. I've had it buy, people buy it for the families. I haven't heard about buying it for ex-friends, but it's a good strategy. Uh, you know, it we is. just live in these brutalizing times. And it is. my book is supposed to be a, a, a missile directed right at that. It's about the, the precise skills of how do you get to know someone? How do you make them feel respected, seen, heard? How do you make them feel respected, seen, and heard? I know why my friends are not my friends anymore. It's because of Donald Trump. They thought me insufficiently outraged about Donald Trump. And I can't bridge that gap, right? I can't be other than what I am, which is I voted for him twice. And if he's the nominee, I'll vote for him again. But they don't understand it. And I don't know that they're trying to understand. I don't understand them either, but I think how to know a person has assisted me. So congratulations. Let me also tell you, I told our mutual friend, Bob Barnett, that I was telling people about your book in Miami as I prepared for the debate, because my wife and I talked about one statistic in particular, one paragraph, actually, on page 98. 36% of Americans reported they felt lonely frequently or almost all of the time including 61% of young adults, 51% of young mothers. The percentage of Americans who said they have no close friends quadrupled between 1990 and 2020. 54% of Americans reported that no one knows them well. That is an extraordinary raft of terrible news, David. Yeah, and I found it's hard to build a healthy democracy on top of a rotting society. And so when this, people are filled with loneliness and sadness, it turns into meanness. Because if you feel yourself unseen and invisible, there's nothing crueler than feeling that people think you don't exist. And you get angry and you lash out. And we have these school shootings. We have bitter politics. We've got the brutality of what's happening on college campuses right now, where Jewish students are being blockaded uh, out of classrooms or have the recipients of, of genocidal death threats. And so suddenly nobody has taught them the basic social skills of how to build a friendship, how to make people feel that you're, you're included. And these are basic social skills, like the kind you could be taught at like learning carpentry or tennis or something like that. 
It's how do you listen well? How do you disagree well? How do you sit with someone who's got depression? How do you sit with someone who's contemplating suicide? How do you sit with someone who disagrees with you fundamentally on issues? And I just try to walk through the basic skills. Uh, and in my view, there in any group of people, there, there are two sorts. There's diminishers, the people who stereotype, ignore, they don't ask you questions, they just don't care about you. And then there's another sort of person who are illuminators, and they are curious about you, they respect you, they want to know your life story, and they make you feel lit up and heard. And my goal in writing the book was partly social, because we need these skills to be a decent society, and partly personal. I just want to be better at, at being an illuminator. I, I think it comes through in the book. I listened to your interview with Katie Couric and her colleague, who I don't know, and they were trying to get at a question a couple of times. So I'm going to try and land that plane. Why did David Brooks write this book? Well, I'll give you the personal reason. You know, if some people, if anybody watched Fiddler on the Roof, you know how warm and huggy Jewish families can be. Uh, I grew up in the other kind of Jewish family, and our culture was think Yiddish, act British. So we were super, we had love in the home. We just didn't express it. We were not a huggy family. We were all cerebral up here. Uh, and then when I was 18, the admissions officers of Columbia, Wesleyan, and Brown decided I should go to the University of Chicago, which was also a super cerebral place. Uh, and my favorite saying about Chicago, it's a Baptist school where atheist professors teach Jewish students St. Thomas Aquinas. And so, you know, I went into the world of journalism where we just aloof and watch stuff. And I realized as a, a favorite novelist of mine, Frederick Buechner once put it, if you cut yourself off from true connection with others, you may save yourself a little pain because you won't be betrayed, but you're cutting yourself off from the holy sources of life itself. And yeah, so David, I, I want um... to be better at being intimate with other people. I've heard you now three times, read in your book, heard you tell it to Katie and heard you tell it to me, the anecdote about the University of Chicago, the anecdote about Yiddish and British. But what is new is you brought up Beekner, And I, I've never read Beekner. I now know his backstory, which is so tragic. You included it in the book. I, di I did not know he had a tragic backstory that illumines his character for me. And maybe I will go and read it. But you're in interview mode. How many different book interviews have you done? Uh, probably... 20 or more. Yeah. I don't know a lot. <clears throat> you're, you're definitely, I know what that's like, where you want to get through an interview and you want to make sure that people, you land the, the point. And I'm, I, I want to get a little bit deeper than that. I want to find out if you're done with your self-examination. There's been a David Brooks self-examination underway for a long time, but you, you have not yet written your book about God. Are you going to go there? Yeah. Well, and at the end of the second mountain, I wrote a book about my spiritual journey. And how I grew up, my phrase was uh, religiously bisexual. So I grew up in a Jewish home, but I went to a church school and I went to a church camp. So I had the story of Jesus in my head and the story of Moses in my head. And it didn't matter because I didn't believe in God. And then when I was 50 or so, reality seemed porous to me. It seemed like we're not just a bunch of physical molecules. Uh, you know, I once, um, I was in subway in New York City and God's ugliest spot on the face of the earth. And I look around the subway car. And I see all these people and I decide all these people have souls. There's some piece of them that has no size, weight, color, or shape, but gives them infinite value and dignity. And their souls could be soaring, their souls could be hurting, but all of us have them. And once you have the concept of the soul in your head, it doesn't take long before the concept of God is in your head. And so I went off, especially about 10 years ago, and it's still going on, a spiritual journey of just trying to figure out what do I believe? And I learned that when you... Um, when you're on a journey like that, uh, Christians give you books. 
And so I got like 700 books sent to me, only 350 of which were different copies of Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And so like that was my journey. And it didn't, um, it, it was very slow and gradual. There wasn't, there were some dramatic moments, but not a lot. But I realized, oh, I'm not an atheist anymore. Uh, and my heart has opened up to something. And I think this book is the extension of that. When your heart opens up to God, and if every person you meet, you think this person was made in the image of God, I'm looking at somebody so important, Jesus was willing to die for that person, then I've got to show them the respect that God would show them. I've got to try to see them with the eyes that Jesus would see them with. And that's a super high standard that I'm not going to meet. But it's a goal. And, and Jesus says, even in brutal, tough times, he sees people, he sees the poor. And the main thing he does is Jesus is always asking questions. Somebody asks him a question, he asks them a question back. And that act of questioning, what you do for a living, you, that's, that's a show of respect. And that's the doorway to seeing someone. And so to me, I think questions are a moral act that we're phenomenal at when we're kids. Uh, and then we get a little worse at it. And I come sometimes leave a party and think that whole time nobody asked me a question. And I've come to think like only 30% of the, the people in the world are question askers. And so part of the thing I do in the book is just try to say, here are some great, here's how to be a great question asker. It, it'll, it's a morally generous thing to do to ask people questions. It is a, that is the key takeaway, how to ask questions. And this is a skill set. I, I sent a note this morning to my friend, Jan Janer, who has been running a Christian ministry for 30 years called uh, The Wild Adventure. He wrote a book called Turning Small Talk into Big Talk. And I was reminded of it. It's a, yours is a longer, more... Um, complicated examination of the art of asking questions and why you want to do so. It's also, it reminded me a lot of C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. You've never met an ordinary human being. Everyone is an eternal horror and everlasting splendor. And you believe that and you get to it. And I want to talk about how one gets there, but I want to begin, interestingly enough, with a, with a comment Katie Couric made you. And I listened to that yesterday. I'd finished your book last week and I made my notes last night. And then I listened to the Katie Couric interview she spontaneously brought up her interview with Sarah Palin. Why do you think she did that, David? I like Katie a lot. And, and yeah. we've, she, she's been a guest on my show. I loved her memoir, at least the first two thirds of it, which was about her younger life, which I thought was fascinating. Why do you think she brought up the Sarah Palin interview? I was also struck by that because I don't think she talks about it enough. I know Katie from various things, and I don't think she talks about it all that much. I think it was a time when, she was asking questions and somebody just wasn't answering. It was a time when she was having a miscommunication. I, I imagine that's, what, that's why she wrote up. Do you have another theory? I do. I, I think it's because she's been misunderstood because of that question and that she wants people who only know Katie Couric because of that question to know that that's not Katie Couric. And that to me, it was it made perfect sense. She needs to be known. And that's the central theme of this. People want to be seen. They want to be known. And if you are if you're known for the wrong thing, in this case, the Katie right. Couric, Sarah Palin interview, you want to you want to get that off your cargo ship. Right. You want that unloaded. And I thought, wow, you really the book worked on her. Um, let me tell you also on page 134, you talk about face experiments with infants. I want them outlawed, David. What did you think when you read it? I, I think those are cruel and awful. Tell people about them. Yeah. So babies come out of the womb uh, wanting to be seen. Uh, if a uh, baby's eyes, they see everything 18 inches away in sharpness. 
Everything else is kind of blurry because they want to see mom's face. And these experiments that you referred to are called still face experiments. The babies send a bid for attention and the moms are instructed, don't respond, just be still face. And in the beginning, the babies are uncomfortable. And then after a few seconds, they start writhing around and, and within five seconds, they're in total agony because it's, nobody is seeing them. And I really don't think that's that much different as adults. I think when we're unseen, uh, it is just total agony. We're rendered invisible. And that's what I encounter in my daily life as a reporter. You know, I, I used to go to the Midwest. I live on the East Coast, but I spent a lot of time in the Midwest. And maybe 10, 15 years ago, once a day, somebody would say, you guys think we're flyover country. In the last five or years, I hear that like 10 times a day. And so a lot of just people feel they're invisible. And frankly, that's a little on my profession, the media. When I started as a police reporter in Chicago, uh, we had working class folks uh, in the newsroom. Our reporters, they hadn't gone to college. They were just regular people from Chicago and they covered crime alongside me. Now, if you go to newsrooms, especially in New York, D.C., L.A., San Francisco, it's not only that everybody went to college, everyone went to the same like 15 elite colleges and a lot of the same prep schools. So if you're not in this little group and you look at the national media and you don't see yourself, it's as if they're telling you your voice doesn't matter, you don't exist. Uh, and that's a form of dehumanization that we've allowed to fester in this country. And of course, people are going to lash out. Yeah, I, I just spent two weeks with really wonderful professionals at NBC preparing for this debate. And at one point, I asked one of my colleagues in this exercise, I don't work for NBC, how many people do you think in this room voted for Trump? And taken aback, they did not answer because the answer is obvious. Nobody. And if if your newsroom is full of, of 100% people who not only didn't vote for Trump, but actually loathe him, you can't cover the country. It's impossible because you're not seeing the other 50%. And what your book is, I hope the newsroom's distributed as well, we are all about seeing people who have long been marginalized, and that is important. But if you don't see people who are supporting Donald Trump for whatever reason, you can't cover the news. Let me ask you about um, this Philip Lewis fellow. Um, I love him because he, he finally gave me the courage to teach the, do, the dormant commerce clause in the 11th Amendment with the confidence that even though my students are terribly bored, they have to know this. Where did you meet Philip Lewis? Because he, he's talking to teachers. Teachers need to read this book, too, if only to be comforted in the fact that every teacher has this experience. Yeah, well, we go through institutions. I've never met him, but I read a book by him. Uh, I may have exchanged emails with him. And he's talking about the different phases of life. And sometimes you're in a phase of life where you're in the career consolidation phase. You just want to build your career, build your name, build your identity. And you're looking for hits. You're looking to be popular. But then after a certain point in life, you hit what you might call the institutional phase or the generative phase. You want to serve an institution. You want to serve a body of truth. You want to have a legacy. And so Philip Lewis said, you know, I'm a teacher. And I used to think the boring parts of the class, I hated them because the students didn't like it. And I wanted to be popular. And then he realized if I'm going to honor what I'm teaching, the body of knowledge of what I'm teaching, then I've got to, I'm going to go through the boring parts. And they may be boring, but they're important to the service of educating people. It's important to the institution. It's important to the body of knowledge. And yeah. that institutional phase is a phase of, of giving and serving. And it takes a lot. Of, and people have to go through a transition of consciousness to go from the me, me, me phase to the, no, I'm serving this institution phase. 
Now, uh, what I took and, away from that is I wrote down, right. it's important to be an entertaining teacher, but you're not an entertainer. And so you, you have to sometimes bore the living daylights out of your students. And so I, I thank Philip for that. I want to make sure I get to a few things with you, David. Number one, how many times, just make a rough guess, how many panels have you been on? In your, we're about the same age, so I, I have a guess, but how many panels do you think in which you have participated? Uh, more than there are stars in the heavens. <laughs> I, I do a lot of panels, and most of them are in Washington, so they're like on fiscal policy, super exciting subjects. So when the panel convenes, they either have a very long introduction or a short introduction or no introduction. Which one of the, each panelist, which do you prefer, the long intro, the medium, or the short? Short as possible. The long ones, A, always have factual errors, and B, nobody's listening. <laughs> and here's what I took away from your book about how big is the mountain. Well, first, why don't you tell the story about uh, affordances, because it's a new word. I've never heard the word affordances until I read How to Know a Person, and then talk about the mountain experiment, because to me, that's a revelation. Yeah, and it was to me, too. So there's a guy named Dennis Prophet who teaches at UVA. And he asked students to estimate the, the grade of the hills on campus there. And the students generally overestimate. So it's a 5% grade hill. They think it's a 20% grade hill. But one day, Prophet's researchers were interviewing students, and they got it exactly right. They said, no, that's a 5% grade hill. And he was wondering, how did the students suddenly get so smart? It turned out that day they were interviewing the members of the Division I women's varsity soccer team. And so these were extremely fit athletes. And so walking up a hill would be no problem. So they saw it more accurately than the students who were less fit. And the general rule, which is going to seem insignificant at first, but now, now I think is very significant. Very. How we, perceive, how we perceive a situation depends on what we can do in a situation. And so if you're hunting with a bow and arrow, you see a different field than if you're hunting with a, with a rifle. Uh, and so... That matters because we all have different capacities in any situation. A rich person walks into Neiman Marcus and sees a different store than the poor person because they can afford to buy the stuff there. Um, where I was teaching at Yale, my students would look at campus and see a different campus than the, the folks who lived in New Haven but who were not Yale-affiliated uh, because they, they were comfortable with it. And for the folks who were unaffiliated, Yale looked like this intimidating fortress. And so how we see a situation depends on the models in our head. We don't see with our eyes. We see with our whole life. And if I'm going to get to know you, I've got to know how do you see this? Because it's probably going to be very different than how I see it. One of my favorite little one-liners in the book is a guy's on one side of the river, and there's a woman on the other side of the river, and she screams him, how do I get to the other side of the river? And he screams back at her, you are on the other side of the river. And so many of us can't perceive the world from another person's point of view. And so that's part of the job. And it's to acknowledge that some people are seeing very different realities than we're seeing. That's why I asked you about panels, because I am one of the most impatient people in the world about introductions. I hate them. But I've come to realize that the person making the introduction has a role to play and a meaning to, um, to grab by, by virtue of that. And people who don't like panels, who are afraid of public speaking, might need that time to collect and gather their thoughts. But the affordance that you and I see, oh, we have an opportunity to hold forth and we can't wait to hold forth. Our opinions matter and these people will listen to us. Let's get going. But the the moderator or the introducer 
and the other people on the panel, they might be completely different from you and I or are completely comfortable in that. I think that's a revolutionary kind of understanding of when you walk into a room or into any situation. Curious. Anyone else who's interviewed you brought that up yet? Uh, nobody at all. I'm very pleased to be able to talk about that. So I, I, I that. think, uh, did you know the word affordance before you, you read that work? No, I had never heard of it. I, I read this book by called Perception by Dennis Prophet, and then he he goes back. It, it, the word was invented by a guy named J.J. Gibson, who was hired by the Air Force to un, help understand how pilots see aircraft carriers when they land it. And he realized they see the carrier differently than you and I because they have to land a plane. And so they see a, the flat top. They see something that's different than because they're doing what they're what the situation affords. They're doing what they need to do depending on what they're capable of doing. I think that is a mountain-sized revelation on how people are seeing the world and how they see us in, in every situation. Let me go to page 210. I have a civil war going on inside my uh, inside. This is David Brooks writing. I have a civil war going on inside between my generative consciousness I aspire to and that little imperial ego that I can, cannot quite leave behind. I suspect I'm not alone in this. You are not. Okay, I can say that with great certainty because I've got the same civil war. Explain to people what that means. Yeah, so I wrote a book called The Second Mountain a few years ago, and it was all about how you should not worry about the worldly <clears throat> success. You should think about divine uh, goodness and, and being Christ-like. And so I wrote that book about don't worry about worldly success. Then I'm checking, checking my Amazon ranking every hour to see how it's selling. So clearly it's not working great on me. And then in this book, it's all about how do you be a really good questioner? How do you get people to tell you their life story? And I walked into a dinner party. I think, yeah, I'm going to be an illuminator. I'm really going to let them shine. And then I have a couple of glasses of wine. I'm still telling funny stories about myself. And it all, it all goes away. So the ego is a super hard thing to corral. And I, I'm a work in progress on that front. Years ago, Joseph Epstein, my favorite writer, I'm sorry you're not him, uh, David, my favorite writer is Joseph Epstein, who refuses to be interviewed, by the way, absolutely refuses to be interviewed on the radio. And Joseph Epstein introduced me to a quote by E.M. Forster, you know you're being influenced when you read something and say to yourself, I might have written that myself if I'd had more time. Well, I couldn't have written this because I haven't read all these books and I'm not a psychologist and I'm not capable of understanding it, but I sure do believe in the questions that get people to open up. Yours is where do you grow? Where did you grow up? Mine is where are you from? Because where are you from usually will generate uh, a reality check on whether they identify with their place of birth or where they're living. Where did you grow up actually gets to the heart of the matter because where you grew up is everything. Do you think where you grew up is everything, David Brooks? Yeah, I agree. And people love to talk about their childhoods. We're too shy about asking that question. But if you say, where did you grow up? Suddenly they're talking about their town, their family, the things that really made them who they are. We all like go through childhood twice. We go through it as kids, and then we have to go back and figure out what it meant. And so I'm trying to get them, tell me what it meant. And so that's, that would be one of my questions. Some other questions are, um, tell me your favorite unimportant thing about yourself. I asked that of somebody recently, and they told me how much trashy reality TV they watch. Huh. Another conversation I, I just had was, uh, how did your ancestors show up in your life? And so we're all shaped by our, our heritages. And I asked that question at a dinner party, and there was a Dutch family that talked about Dutch heritage. There's a black family that talked about African-American heritage. I talked about 5,000 years of Jewish history. We just got to know each other a lot better. And so that book you held up, How to Turn Small Talk into Big Conversations, that really is a crucial skill. We want to have conversations that 
we're going to remember. And I mean, it's what you do on the program, but not, not just small talk. I like small talk, frankly, but I want to have big conversations that I'll, I'll leave and I'll think, wow, that guy, that guy was an amazing guy. I'm so glad I got to meet him. But, you know, it's interesting, David, if we had met and I didn't know anything about you, you and I would end up talking about baseball for an hour and never learn anything about each other because small talk becomes a wall over which many people cannot climb. Uh, I have to tell you a story and get you to react to it. Uh, I'm Roman Catholic. My wife is Presbyterian. So on Sunday, I went to Mass at 7. Then I went to the Presbyterian Church with her, where we, after services, heard a rabbi talk about Jewish prayer. And in the course of this, a rabbi I've never met before knocked me stone cold over by revealing, because it was appropriate to reveal, that he and his wife had three grandchildren born in the same period about 10 weeks ago, and one of them died. And he paused and he talked about what that was like. Nobody in the room knew this very wise, extraordinary teacher, by the way, a gifted, gifted teacher, was carrying this great burden of sorrow. And I was ready for it because I, I had just read your book, and we really don't know what people carry into every room. And I don't know whether or not we want to know. What do you think? Do we want to know? I did. I'm glad the rabbi told us that. In fact, I'm going to have lunch with him this week to, to follow up with him because it's, it's such a horrible thing and, and such a, a vulnerable thing to share with people. But do you think people want us to know their sorrows? Yes. Uh, people, especially in hard circumstances, they desperately want somebody else to be there with them. And so I, I had a friend who, who had a daughter who died of a horseback riding accident in Afghanistan and of all places. And the daughter's name was Anna. And she said to me once, you know, people uh, don't always know whether they should mention Anna to me because they're afraid of bringing up a painful subject. But they should know that Anna is always on my mind. And so if you mention her, then I, if I feel like talking about her, I will talk about her. If I don't feel like talking about her, I won't talk about it. But if you mention her, you've given me the opportunity. And the other story she said as she was grieving she said, do you want to know what the weirdly the best thing that happened to me in that grieving process was? Somebody came to visit me, brought me a casserole or whatever. And then they went to the bathroom and they noticed we didn't have a bath mat in the bathroom. And so they went out to Target, they bought a bath mat and they just put it in. They didn't even tell me. And she said, that kind of little practical help, that made me feel seen. Uh, and so I think when, you, when you're with someone who's suffered a loss, there's not much you can say to make it better, but you can just acknowledge the, the, the situation. This, you know, uh, this years ago, yeah. David, the first television series I did for National was something called Searching for God in America and for PBS in 1996. I got to chat with Dr. with Harold Kushner, the rabbi who wrote When Good Things Happen to Bad Things. And I don't remember much about it, except he said, when people are suffering, show up and shut up. Don't say anything. Yeah. And especially don't be a topper. And when I read in in this book, I finally have a way to phrase it to people. Don't be a topper. I didn't know quite what it, you crystallized. So explain to people what it means, don't be a topper, because if nothing else, people need to hear this. Don't be a topper. Yeah. So we'll do two levels of topperness. Uh, the first one is if you tell me you're having a problem with your teenage kid, I say, oh, I know exactly where you're going through. I'm having a problem with my Tommy. And it sounds like I'm just trying to relate. But what, I, what I'm really doing is saying, let's stop talking about you. Let's talk about me. And so that's being a topper on the minor league level. The major league topper happens when somebody suffers a loss in his case, or somebody's going through cancer, and they, you realize they're going through, they've just lost their sister, say. And you say, oh, I know what you're going through. My dog died. And when somebody t tells you something terrible that happened, no comparisons. Never do comparisons. Just never, never do it. Just say, well, 
tell me about your sister. That's all you got to do. Tell me about your sister. And if they feel like saying, they will. If they don't, they won't. But you've given them an option and you haven't tried to hog or appropriate their experience. Uh, that is, people stop right now, take that away and ask yourself, because I do it. I, I'm guilty. The first inclination is to try and reach someone in their sorrow by identifying with them. But it's actually the wrong thing to do. And Harold, I, I stop myself before I top often, but the uh, the topperism is rampant among us. David, your time is precious. So I want to make sure uh, I get to this, the night sea journey. Um, you talk about the night sea journey at paid 162. To know a person well, you have to know who they were before they suffered their losses and how they remade their whole outlook after them. The question is, when do you begin that process? Because it's not something you can start. Even if you met someone a half dozen times, you can't start it. When, when do you start it? Well, you know, I used to think wisdom was the capacity to have a bunch of maxims that you could spew out to people that would help them guide their life. And I say, I love maxims, so if somebody gives me a maxim. But now I think wisdom is the capacity to be receptive. It's to wisely receive. It's to know when somebody's ready, to reveal vulnerability in an appropriate place. So if somebody has suffered a great loss, the death of a spouse, wisdom is understanding where they are and letting them lead. And so think of the way a pianist accompanies a singer. The singer is leading the presentation and the accompanist, the pianist, is alongside for the ride, an other-centered way of being. So if somebody's gone, gone through some suffering, I'm sort of there for the ride. I'm just being present. And if they want to open up and describe, then I'm happy to have them do it. And when people are going through loss, basically all the models in their head are outdated. Because I, had, I was having dinner with a friend who lost his wife. And he, as we left the restaurant, we had a great conversation. And he said, I can't wait to tell my, my wife. And then I realized that wasn't going to happen because she had died. And so he's got to go through that process of including his wife in his heart as one of the things, the great blessings of his life, but as something that was in the past. And he's got to re, re-update his models for the life that he now is going to live. Now, you just called to mind. I don't want to know the name of the person, but you have a friend who when someone suffered a public disgrace, they took them to dinner weekly for two years. That is a friend yeah. indeed, because that is to to put yourself in harm's way with the disgraced person. I don't know that I'm capable of that. Were you, uh, do you find that astonishing? I don't know that I, I thought of all the disgraced people I've known or heard of all these years, and there's a long list of them, right? People who are publicly disgraced. To go out with them for every week for two years, that's a saint. Yeah, no, it's really a beautiful act of service. And, you know, I'm friends with a guy who was disgraced, and I tried to be nice to him. I went out to lunch with him occasionally. But it was not a regular thing of making him feel included. And, there, you know, I tell a story in the book about a woman named Jillian who lost her dad. Yeah. And she was at a wedding, and she there was time for the father-daughter dance, and she just couldn't handle it. Uh, and so she, she goes in the ladies' room to have a cry. And when she comes out, Everybody at her table and the next table were just standing there in the hallway. And she says, and she wrote in a paper, she gave me permission to quote. She said, what I will always remember is that nobody said a thing. They just gave me a hug. They didn't linger to validate or to justify themselves or to validate my grief. They just were there for me, giving me a hug in silence. And it was exactly what I needed. It's a wonderful I story. that moment for the rest of your life. My son just got married two weeks ago, and I thought of that story when I was reading this. I want to close by going big, David. 
to the world in which we find ourselves. I'm going to leave from here and go down to the March for Israel on the Mall. And the reason I'm doing that is because I can't stop thinking about baby Kavir and the toddlers because I'm a grandfather and I have little, little tiny children and I can't go on. At the same time, I can't let it go past without saying I'm with you. But as I read your book, I was reading in parallel a new book, a relatively new book that came out last year called The Pope at War. Uh, Francis has opened up the Vatican's archives on Pius XII. And it occurs to me that at the time of the war, the Catholic hierarchy could not see Jews. They could see Italians. They could see people close, but they could not see, they could not imagine it. And that brings me up to the present. I don't know that these monsters in Hamas can actually see the people that they butchered or the hostages that they are holding. Is is that the problem that there's just that they've lost their ability to see anything on the other side of the fence? Yeah, I think a, a label and ideology can be very dehumanizing. Somebody interviewed one of the guys who committed the Rwandan genocide, who macheted his neighbor of 25 years. You told that's and in the book. Yeah. The journalist said, yeah, what, what did you see when you macheted your neighbor? And he said, well, the, the person's face got all blurry. It wasn't really the person I'd been living next to. And that's the ultimate form of dehumanization. And the Hamas guys have been so dehumanized by hate. They can rape a girl. They can put an infant in the oven and roast it. Uh, this is the most extreme and ugly form of dehumanization. But we're also seeing ugly forms of dehumanization in this country. And I'm, I was with, I'm in Miami right now, and I, I was with an older Jewish woman who just, she was progressive. And she says, all my life I've felt I've had brothers and sisters, and now I realize I'm totally alone, that there's nobody there to see her in her moment of turmoil and grief. And instead, there's just been this wave of anti-Semitism. And what is anti-Semitism? It's dehumanization. And the DEI offices on campuses are not there to, for diversity, equity, inclusion. They're there for an ideology of dehumanization, that you're either oppressor, oppressed, colonizer, or colonized. And so what we need in this country is a movement of genuine pluralism that says, no, I'm not going to dehumanize you. I will actually be curious about you. I will ask your life story. And all the people who are withdrawing from money from the universities, I'm sort of glad they're doing it, but I wish they would invest in something to counter DEI which would be an office of pluralism, of genuine seeing, of genuine conversation. And that's the only way I see our universities maintaining some equilibrium here. Yeah, I would, uh, I would suggest that they fund freshman seminars where everyone begins by reading how to know a person, and they begin by getting to know the people in that seminar so that they would actually understand with whom they are attending college and that college actually be what it is. Well done, David Brooks. It's a magnificent book. Success to you. It's very hard to start a book tour in the middle of a, an international calamity. I don't know how you're doing it, but good luck to you in, in carrying it through. Thank you. You've been very generous. I'm really appreciative. Thank you. My pleasure. David Brooks, How to Know a Person, The Art of Seeing Others Deeply and Being Deeply Seen, available in bookstores everywhere. everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... 
Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Dr. Michael Oren is a former ambassador of Israel to the United States, former deputy minister in a previous Netanyahu government scholar, historian, wonderful guy, author of Clarity, the substack that people need to be reading whenever it comes out. Good morning, Dr. Oren. Welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Um, I want to begin by asking you if you think we've Americans, Americans have lost the thread in this war, because I'm increasingly uh, disturbed at how few Americans understand the trauma under which Israel is operating right now. Let me just begin. I'm, I'm, I'm very choked up, uh, Hugh. I just got word uh, that Hamas released a video of a 19-year-old uh, young woman named Noah Marciano, uh, a soldier. She was captured, uh, and I spent a lot of time with her mother, with Adit uh, Marciano. Uh, I spent a lot of time when I was in Israel. Right now I'm in an emergency fundraising tour in the United States, but... Uh, Adi Marciano was the most extraordinary woman, uh, just uh, full of, of strength and faith. And her daughter, by all accounts, was just a remarkable woman, a Yarkham woman. Hamas yesterday uh, released a uh, film clip, I just learned this now, released a, a film clip of her daughter uh, showing her dead, showing her lifeless body, claiming she had been killed in an Israeli airstrike. I know these people, Hugh. Okay, it, it, it's, I don't know moment I just literally just found this out now so um uh yeah they've lost the thread <laughs> let's go back to that i've lost well the michael i i began the show by talking about noah because marciano is a common name in northeastern ohio it's an italian name i know a lot of marcianos and i don't know what her roots are but they executed her i mean i just have to assume they executed her the stories in the times of israel they're monsters they're how they're just absolute monsters this young woman was, was, I mean, I just sat with her mother for hours. And uh, Marcia has a common Israeli name, too. It's a common, you know, Eastern Jewish name. So, um, well, okay, let's go back and talk about this. This is hard. Um, you lost it. And some of it are losing it. These letters of a former American, uh, you know, diplomats and, and congressional aides. Don't they get it? Don't they get it that this is not a war for Israel, that this is a war for Western civilization? This is a war for you, that if we lose, you are next. Don't they get it when they say Israel has to be careful with the hospitals, Israel has to be careful with the civilians? Don't they get it that Hamas, Hamas is using these people as human shields and that we have no choice, that we are losing our soldiers by going slowly? I mean, if we were a quote-unquote normal country in the United States, we would have carpet-bombed this place a long time ago. We would have wiped them off. If, if someone had come to the United States and killed 50,000 Americans, that's the equivalent, okay? 50,000 Americans in 24 hours had taken 10,000 American prisoners. What would the United States have done to them? Look at the United States did to ISIS. And as far as I know, ISIS did not invade the United States of America. I mean, I, they killed a couple of journalists, but I don't remember them killing thousands of Americans. It, it, By the way, it is, same thing. It was not Hussein, right? Ditto. And, you know, what choice do we have that this is a war of national survival for the Jewish people? Because if we do not win this war, we have 250,000 people who have, been loot, have lost their homes, been evacuated. They can't go back to their homes unless we defeat Hamas. We will have zero um, uh, deterrence power. 
that everybody in the Middle East will understand that you can smack Israel, you can kill Israel, you can massacre Israelis, and Israelis won't be able to do anything because the international community will tie our hands with a ceasefire. And that you know, don't they get it? And don't they get it that that these jihadis, if they beat Israel, they're coming for you next because they're going to understand that that everybody's fair game. And by the way, you know, to the credit, the French and the British understand that. I think well, Macron understands that too. What, what was Macron doing? I know he walked it back when he said that Israelis were targeting children. And and I've got to go to Jake Sullivan. I know he's your friend, so I, I will I will frame this as as gently as I can. When he said that Israel has to respect hospitals, he basically put a sign above the hospital saying, Hamas, come here and we'll try and keep America from attacking you. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen a national security advisor say, Dr. Orrin. Listen, someone said to me, I can't tell you who, uh, a senior journalist said to me yesterday, it's no longer for, for the this administration is no longer about Gaza, it's about Michigan. And uh, you get it. And so there, there's a lot of... A lot of pressure on these people. And see, look, look, at, look, look what's going happening in the polls. Look what's happening to all these former officials and not just former officials, current officials signing letters back and forth. Um, and the, you know, the progressives out uh, crazy, you know, protesting for for uh, for demo- for, uh, for communism and for Hamas. I mean, really, you got You can't make this stuff up. Um, they're under a certain amount of pressure. They're trying to let off a little steam. You know, go easy on the hospitals. Yeah. If, I had, course, if I had asked you on 10-6, if I had given you, we talk once a week or almost once a week. If I had asked you a hypothetical, Dr. Oren, a terrorist organization invades Israel and kills 1,200 Israelis, kidnaps another 230, and would have gone further and gone longer, but for the fact that they were turned back by the IDF and armed citizenry, what would Israel's reaction be? Would you have expected it to be this restrained and this calibrated and this very, very precise and careful exercise in elimination of Hamas? No, I would have expected to be more visceral and more complete. And I I would have expected just the army to line up with all of our guns and all of our tanks and all of our planes and just let loose for 10 minutes. And then there'd be no more Gaza. There'd be no more Gaza. That's what, by the way, that's what a normal country would do. Uh, a normal country wouldn't hesitate for a second to do that. And uh, and no, uh, we, every day, you know, we look at our, our cell phones, we see another soldier killed, another soldier killed. We all know these soldiers. And some people will say, to why are we doing this? Why don't we just blow them away? You know, why should a single additional Israeli die? And the real reason we're doing this is because we are part of a civilization that fully doesn't do that. Because well, we, I have been listening to uh, you and to this Habib Reddick Gur, who I've never met before, and he keeps communicating to Dan Senor that people in America yeah. do not understand the trauma in Israel. And I think he's right. I don't think American media especially has any idea what the average Israeli, and you're not an average Israeli, you know everybody, but what the average Israeli has in their soul. And I think it's iron in the soul. I think it's a resolution so complete. It doesn't matter if every American stood up and said, stop. I don't think Israel would stop. Now, 95% are not going to say stop. They're going to say, go do what you have to do. But is he right? Am I right that the the resolve is complete? They do not care what America thinks? Well, they don't care. We don't care what America thinks. <laughs> I'll tell you right now. We don't care what the world thinks. We do not care, but it, it, it's irrelevant. It's not even a matter of feelings here. We're in the we're in the level of existential necessity. It's exigency. What's exigency? We if we don't win, we die. As simple as that. This is not a war of choice. This is a war of national survival. 
And yeah. I would go as far as to say it's not just a war for Israel's national survival. We have, I, I've been around campuses. I was at Columbia the other day. I spoke to the students at Cornell. It is a story. It is a war for Jewish people's survival. And uh, this is a war against the Jews, you worldwide. What's going on? That's and why I'm going down to the too. mall today, Michael. I hope every non-Jew in the Beltway who can get away goes. I know the Jews will show up, and that's great. American Jewry will show up today on the mall, but I'm hoping American Goys show up and say, we are with them, not with those crazy people at our campuses. What are you in the country raising money for? How can people help you do what you're about? I am not going to be at this rally. I'm down at a university in Florida. I'm doing the craziest thing going on a university campus today. Um, I cannot tell you, and I won't tell you, the degree of security around me and the and the, the amount of uh, protesters we're going to get today. Uh, it's uh, it's going to be something you know <laughs> apocalyptic, and you got to be a little nuts to do this. But uh, you know, I'm not going to let them chase me off the campus, just not. So you know, we're going we're going to fight them in the Churchillians. We're going to fight them in the in the media. We're going to fight them, you know, in in the classroom, uh, and we're going to fight them in the streets of Gaza. But um, one thing you need to notice that the people who are protesting so, solely for Palestine, they're actually protesting for mass murderers, okay, um, are burning American flags. You're going to see they're, they're burning American flags. They're trying to get over the White House. Watch what this protest looks like today. Watch what this demonstration. You're going to see thousands and thousands and thousands of American flags. This is a pro, this is a, a demonstration not just for Israel. It's a demonstration for the United States of America. It's a demonstration for our civilization. And it can't. it cannot be more... I don't know. I cannot be more emphatic about that. Um, I, among other I things, I'm, I'm, I'm here uh, fundraising for the United Hatzalah. It's the largest, world's largest uh, volunteer emergency medical system. It's these guys on what's called ambulance cycles. They, they drive on motorcycles and they got to, they get you into within 90 seconds if anything happens to you. But in, on October 7th, they were the first people on the scene. Uh, two of the volunteers were killed. Two were taken captures, uh, taken hostage. Others have been uh, very grievously wounded, but that's not what I'm fundraising for. I'm fundraising for because um, all the medical stocks w- were depleted, but completely depleted. And uh, we are in an emergency situation. So I'm here uh, raising money for United Hatzalah. Uh, there's no great, it's 7,000 volunteers, uh, paramedics, uh, Jews and Arabs, by the way, a lot of Arabs. And uh, and so trying to help them, trying to get, you know, bandages, literally get bandages and tourniquets. So it's that what, what is the website? I can't spell hot Zala, Michael. You know, my Hebrew is about as good as my uh, uh, Yiddish, which is not a, United Hat Zala. That's a U H A T Z A L A H. OK, Dwayne will have heard that. And I want to ask I want to close with one question. You're on campuses. What explains the moral vacuum or rot? I'm not sure if it's a vacuum or a rot among people under the age of 25 they are utterly ignorant of history and, and of current events, but mostly of history. They have no idea how Israel came to be or the backdrop and how or, or Zionism and how old it is or the Balfour Declaration. They're just morons. How did this happen? But, you know, this is, you know, canary in the coal mine time. You, know, you can't fault them because they have been fed. They have been drilled into them from a very early age and now by their professors on the university not just to hate us, but to hate you, to hate your civilization, to hate your country. It, 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 I see it so much as, as a matter of self-hatred. And, and, uh, and Israel is an expression of that. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of anti-Semitism. They don't even understand it's anti-Semitism, but most of them, the most of them, not all of them. And, and, and there's a cool factor. And so it's cool that 
you know, to hate Israel. It's cool to hate America. And, and kids want to be accepted. Um, yep. and, and, and so much of that. But they're, 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 they're reinforced in everything they do. What do you expect from them? It's Orwellian. It is. I hope you watch the video of, of Senator Coons, Democrat. You know, we don't agree on anything. But yesterday he kept his calm when confronted by one of these radicals pretending to be a journalist who's just a moron. And he kept his cool. There's a lot of recons after Hamas is destroyed and you will win and you will destroy them. There's a lot of work to do, Michael. Are you kind of overwhelmed by the challenge ahead? Yeah, let me just say, I, I know Chris Coon very well. He's a good man. He's a good man. He's a tough guy. Um, am I overwhelmed by the challenge? No, because there's no choice. We're not going to be overwhelmed by anything. It's going to be difficult. So we're going to need all the help in the world. But thank you. Thank you for going to that rally. United Hetzala. Uh, we'll find the link. I'll post it out there. Stay safe, Dr. Michael Oren. Read his Substack Clarity. He comes whenever he can. And I am sorry for your loss and the loss of the Marciano family. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined now by Bethany Mandel, who I assume is going to be down at the mall today. Bethany, are you going to get down there? I mean, you've got a whole herd of youngsters to take with you if you go, but I'm expecting a large crowd. Are you? Yeah. Yeah, I am. So I was just in New Jersey talking to friends, and they have so many buses coming that no bus company in the New York, New Jersey area has any buses left. So hundreds of buses are coming down right now. I'm going to have to pack a backpack with a couple of sandwiches and and maybe walk home across the river. Bethany, why is it important for non-Jews to come out today? Because I've been making that point. I'm I'm sure Jews, American Jews will come out, but goys like me have got to show up. Yeah, I mean, people think that this is just a Jewish problem. And, you know, the majority of the people there will be Jewish. Um, But I actually think it's going to be interesting for the American Jewish community to see how many non-Jews show up, because I think everyone is assuming that everyone knows the lyrics to Hatikva. And uh, a lot of people hopefully won't. A lot of people will be there and say, like, I'm here because I stand up in the face of an atrocity, the likes of which we've never seen in our lifetimes. And we support the Jewish people and we support the state of Israel defending itself and trying to get these hostages home. Yeah, I can't spell Hatikva. So I, I'm not going to be the guy who's there with, with the Hatikva sign. And I don't have any blue and white caps or anything like that. But it's a democracy. It's in the Middle East. And it was the focus of a savage, barbaric attack. And it's about civilization against barbarism. Uh, Bethany, and I I wonder what your general reaction is to the explosion of anti-Semitism across the United States on campuses. I, I'm just stunned by this. Yeah, I mean, I wish I were stunned, honestly. I, over the course of the last few years, we've seen an explosion of anti-Semitism that largely went ignored. Um, anyone who is visibly Brooklyn, visibly Jewish living in Brooklyn has a story about getting spat on, getting beat up, getting stabbed. In 2019, there were two terrorist attacks that people barely spoke about in Jersey City at a supermarket and then at a rabbi's house in Muncie. And it, it didn't really get noticed and it didn't really get talked about. And the the anti-Semitism that is percolating under the surface has always been known to people who are visibly Jewish. My, my husband wears a yarmulke every single day. And the number of times that he's been spat on or pushed sort of violently on the metro here in D.C., like it got to the point where he started wearing a baseball cap to work. Bethany, I do not believe that anti-Semitism is limited to the pro-Hamas wing of the Democratic Party. I think it's latent in the country. And I I just didn't realize it was this bold. 
it's unashamed. That's what I think is surprising about this. Do you think it's unashamed in a way that it hasn't been before? Yeah, I mean, I think that people were always sort of looking for the opportunity to talk about it. But when Kanye West goes off on the Jews, if you look at the comments section, I'm sorry, like it is terrifying. People who with their real name and their real, you know, picture on Instagram, on Facebook, who are like, well, Kanye's right. And so is Hitler. Like, it's honestly shocking and terrifying. Now, my alma mater has established a task force, Harvard. I, we don't need any task force. Remember that song? We don't need another hero. We don't need another task force. We need a policy that is clearly articulated and promptly enforced. If you assault anybody, including Jews, you will be expelled. An assault is the imminent and reasonable fear of an unwanted and unpermitted touching. It's not battery. It's just you're getting someone's face. That's an assault. Do you do you think we need task force, Bethany, or do we need an assault? Uh, you're out I mean, policy. I mean. You just need you just need policies that are strictly enforced. I mean, MIT, I, I was talking to students a couple of weeks ago and they told me, you know, in the in the wake of the initial instance incidents at MIT, they said, well, you know, the university told us they were establishing a task force. And I told the students I was in contact with, like, they're pulling your chain. They're trying to to burn out the clock. I mean, the same thing at Columbia. They they banned students for justice in Palestine for one semester. They're trying to burn out the clock. This is a strategy that I mean, it's damage control 101. They don't actually care. If they actually cared, they would be taking action now. Yeah, and so I go back. If you see a college or a university establishing a task force, they're cowards. They're afraid of their students because it's not hard to throw people out of a university for assault. It's it's, It's a crime, number one, but I don't know of any university where assault is permitted except, in this case, against Jews and people who support Israel. And I hope people get arrested downtown today. If anyone gets assaulted on their way to this march, I hope they get arrested immediately. Do you think they will? Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, there's a reason why everyone is busing in. I live in the suburbs in Maryland. We could take the metro and we're taking a bus in. And everyone in my community is doing the same because we're afraid of the metro. We're afraid of what could go down on the metro. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think you're probably right. And I, I may see you down there. There'll only be a few hundred thousand people, so I probably won't. But I'm coming from the other side of the river, so I, I won't see you on the highways. But good luck. I hope you leave early because it's going to take forever to get there. And I hope, do you think the news media will cover it tonight? Uh, it seems like, I mean, the conversations that I'm having with media asking me, you know, do you, do you know of someone going? I'm like, yeah, I know a few people. Yeah, Yeah. I could probably hook you up with a few attendees. Yeah, I hope they show. I hope they show. Bethany Mandel, be well. I will see you soon. I may see you on the mall. I doubt it. Among my closest 100,000 friends coming down to the mall today. Don't go anywhere, America. I'm joined by Brett Baer, host of Fox News Special Report each night at 6 p.m. And Brett, I I may see you today. I'm going to go down to the mall and march with the Friends of Israel. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about Duel Across Time. And I want to tell you why I want to talk about Duel Across Time. Good morning, by the way. Good to have you. Hey, good morning. I have a um, a nine-year-old grandson, and he went to my, my daughter, went to his parent-teacher meeting, and the teacher said, you know, he's really reading quite advanced. He's like in the 10th grade, but he loves graphic novels, and that's all. we got to get him away from graphic novels. And I said, no, you just got to get him the right graphic. Now, he loves Big Nate. And you've started this. So this is like, made for my grandson. Tell us about Duel Across Time. 
Yeah, it's uh, the History Club Duel Across Time. It's about four friends who met at a uh, members of a history club in a middle school. And secretly, they're also tapped to protect history from this villain called the History Twister, who's going back in time to change it. And they were chosen to do this not just because they love history, but because they, they work together as a team. And in this first series, this first book in the series, the villain has changed history so that Alexander Hamilton won his duel against Aaron Burr, and now he's been branded a criminal. And the team of heroes has to figure out how to fix it. It is really fun. I've never done anything like this. I, I always tried to do a children's book that was like a rewrite of one of my presidential books. And this time I said, I'm going to do something totally different that kids probably would like. And my kids like it. So that's the test. So it's kind of like 7 to 15. And um, it's just really well illustrated. Marvin uh, Sianapur. And uh, it's it's going to be fun, I think. I think. Oh, I think it's going to sell like hotcakes because my reaction is the same one my my parents had when I was a kid, which is if he wants to read comic books, get him the 15 cent comic book because reading is reading and graphic novels. I'm glad I just want him to read. And if that's the current way in which nine year olds read, I want him to get good ones. So more power to you. How many of these do you intend to do? Are you going to be like the Goosebumps series of 20 years ago and just churn them out? I don't know. I don't know. We definitely are doing two. Uh, We'll see how it goes from there. But, you know, there's real history in here. You know, so that's the other thing is that we're kind of infusing the real stories of of our past in cool ways. And, uh, you know, they're bouncing around trying to solve things. And yeah, I'm going to so t- I'm going to tell my daughter to take this into the teacher and say, here is the answer. The boys in fourth grade love graphic novels. We'll give them good ones that have content. So it's, a, it's actually an inspired idea, Brett. Congratulations. Duel across time for all you parents and grandparents out there looking for Christmas presents. Now, Brett, tell me about um, how you're going to cover today. I know you won't. Mark, I, I'm an opinion journalist. I get to go out and do whatever I want. You're a neutral, and so you cannot go out in March. But I hope you cover this March today because I think there are going to be tens of of thousands of people there. Yeah, of course. And um, I had Daniel Krauthammer on last night um, who who was talking about his dad's uh, writings about Israel and the past moments. And uh, he has really been affected by October 7th and um, by the fallout from it and what he's seen in the marches uh, pro-Palestinian and what he called pro-Hamas marches in some of these places in the U.S. So he's, you know, one of the people uh, trying to get people out uh, to the march. Anyway, I had him on the show and uh, we talked about it. I think it's really a, a big moment. It is a counter to what we've seen around the country. And of course, we're going to cover it extensively. Um, and I am a journalist and I cover both sides, but covering both sides means that you're going to cover this too and not just all the things we see on college campuses. You know, foxnews.com has opened up a silo devoted to anti-Semitism in America. It's the only major legacy media or new media platform that is actually devoted to silo. And silos are a great way to focus the attention of your reader. And I know you folks are very, very committed to covering in depth this issue. And I don't think it will go away. I'm glad Daniel was joining you last night. I didn't see the show last night. So that is a very good thing. I do think a lot of American Jewry is deeply troubled, Brett. Now, I'm not a Jew, and, 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 and you obviously aren't either, but I'm curious, what, what, do you, what do you hear from your Jewish friends? Are they as troubled as mine are? 
Yes, very much so. I mean, I think that there is this sense of um, uh, not just, you know, anti-Israel, but anti-Jew uh, that they're seeing around the country. That is far more prolific than I think even they saw and felt. You know, I think that there was there were always incidents and they they felt anti-Semitism from some time, some corners, but nothing like this in in an exposed way. So, yeah, I hear it all the time. And uh, I think it's a big, big deal and a big issue. And uh, we have to be careful of covering things, you know, fairly. But you also have to put things in context. And losing sight of what happened on October 7th is really uh, missing the context. Yeah. Now I want to talk about debates. Uh, you are a skilled— well, first of all, uh, let me just interrupt you. I think you did a fantastic job. I really loved uh, the questions, especially on China and that whole— um, that whole riff there, and uh, I thought you guys did a really, really great job. I think I would have liked debate number three um, <laughs> because uh, I know, told everyone that <laughs> people were coloring within the lines a little bit better. Uh, and I also think debate four and debate five are going to be even better as you get fewer and fewer candidates. That's what I told everyone who said, boy, that was that was bad, better than debate two. And I said, well, there were only five people and we gave them 90 <laughs> seconds. And it's just a qu- I did one with 13 people once and it was the worst thing I've ever been. It was like a traffic jam and a collision all at once. And so, Brett, I hope you get back around again, because I think we're going to get down to two or three pretty quickly. What what's your crystal ball say? Yeah, I, I was a little bit surprised that uh, Tim Scott exited the way he did. I know Trey Gowdy was surprised on his show. Uh, if you look at his, his face and his yep. reaction, and in fact, I was at home and they called me to do a phoner um, during the interview. They said, this just happened, you know, so I just hopped on the phone and got on the show right after um, Senator Scott said what he said. So I do think that that's going to happen. I do think that the bar is going to be higher each time. I don't know if uh, how many will be in Alabama, but I know the, the debate after that could be two or three, and uh, you suddenly get into a much different ball game, and it gives you a lot more, um, a lot more leeway. You know, you expand the time. You don't, you know, worry about some of uh, the the stipulations that you have to do, and you have more of an in-depth discussion, which is, as we've talked about many times, what we're trying to get to. Now, Brett, what I would hope, and if Ron is listening and David Bossier are listening to RNC, is that when we get down to two or three, they just ask you, just you, Brett, to do it solo, because I, I just think it's easier to manage. And remember the uh, vice presidential debate between Dick Cheney and Joe Lieberman? I think it was Jim Laird yeah. did it. Best debate yeah. ever. Best debate ever. Around a table, no audience, one moderator who's fair. Do you think that's the best model? Well, I actually think for the voter, it is the best model. And, um, you know, I understand the RNC wants to fill, you know, arenas and they want to, you know, all this stuff. But in reality, the best thing for the voter is a just the candidates and one moderator. And I was such a big fan of Jim Lehrer and I took him to lunch a number of times talking to him about what he thought about, um, you know, in in debates. And uh, I learned a lot. Just watching him and then talking to him on the side. Yeah. Jim Lehrer, Brian Lamb. They are my my idols for how to do an interview and a debate in that format would work. I hope it comes to pass. We will see. Brett Bear, congratulations on Duel Across Time, the new History Club graphic novel. It's available in bookstores everywhere and for Christmas, especially. Brett, I'll see you soon. Thank you, my friend. Okay, see you. 
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by David M. Drucker of the Dispatch, Chief Political Correspondent. David, I was just talking with a distraught Dr. Michael Oren, who just learned about the death of uh, Noah Marziano, a corporal who he knows his mother. Uh, I think fundamental realignment is afoot in the United States over this issue. What do you think? I can't I can't hear anything. Yeah, David is we've lost David. Uh, I did look up and I just posted on my X account, the site formerly known as Twitter, the Hatzala, United Hatzala link, where you can contribute to the Israel Emergency Fund uh, and do it for the corporal, do it for Dr. Oren, do it for Israel, and then join me at the March Day if you're in the Beltway or anywhere close to the Beltway. Sometimes when we have a guest lined up like like David, their internet ban goes down. I'm not surprised in D.C. today, unless you've got fiber optic into a studio. I imagine a lot of your your internet service will be disrupted today, and we're trying to get them back up on the phone, because I, I, I do believe a fundamental realignment is underway in the United States over this. Between the people who are awake, it's like 9-11. I have not felt this way since 9-11, when you suddenly realize. Now, we should know it about China and the CCP. We should know it about Putin and Russia, but it's not as immediate, right? It's not right there in front of us. Israel, the, the savagery, the brutality, the monstrous nature of Hamas and the regime behind them, Iran and their allied proxies, the Houthis and the Hezbollah, they're all of a piece, right? David, good morning. How are you? I'm great, you. Uh, so I think a fundamental realignment is happening uh, among a significant portion of Americans, between 5 and 25 percent, who are just looking at the Democratic Party and their incoherence on Israel and saying, no more, I'm leaving. What do you think? I, I think it's far too soon, and there's, there's, there's not anywhere near enough data to conclude that. Um, I, I, think, I think it's clear American Jews are sort of – American Jews who usually vote for Democrats, which is most of them, I think, have been perplexed and extremely disappointed by the far left, but have been plenty satisfied and heartened by the center left, which is the president and most Democrats in Congress. And I think that especially given a choice between um, if it's Joe Biden on the ballot or most of the Democrats on the ballot that they've been voting for, particularly in the last eight years in a lot of these suburban districts and center left districts, but not, you know, super progressive districts, uh, they'll take that any day of the week if the other side is perceived to be a Republican Party defined by the populist right and Donald Trump. Oh, you know, so, but David, I'm not talking about 2024. I'm talking about realignment. And by that, I mean, yeah, like 2002, after 9-11, there was a realignment. And yes, uh, there because wasn't the, a permanent realignment. When we talk realignment, we're, we're talking about a permanent shift or a generational shift. And I still don't have enough data or even anecdotal knowledge to indicate any sort of generational shift. Well, I don't have any, I don't have any polling data. What I see is a dagger at the heart of Western civilization, just like 9-11, and just as it evidenced itself in the 2002 off year when uh, W got control of the Senate because he wasn't on the ballot, but Republicans were, and they were, as Jim Garrity called it, voting to kill. I think... A whole bunch of Americans are realizing savagery is abroad in the world, in Russia, China, and especially Iran and its proxies, and that the Democrats have within their party uh, an incoherent caucus that cannot be trusted to govern. I mean, AOC and her gang, they can't be trusted to govern. 
Well, AOC and her game cannot, but I don't think that the Democratic Party right now is defined in the eyes of a lot of these voters as AOC and her game. And I think when they look at Republicans um, similarly show a hesitation to project American power abroad to aid Ukraine in its fight against Russia, a lot of these things make for a very volatile electorate, but also tells them that they're not sure really what to do with their choice if the thinking, as you say, and I was, you know, I recall this and I don't necessarily disagree, you know, after 9-11, there was this, this belief that, look, is one side going to be serious about national security? Is the other side not going to be? I think they see things to be happy with and unhappy with on both sides of the aisle. And I think it leaves a lot of voters knowing, not knowing what to do. And I, you know, the other thing I would just point out is that as poorly as some Democrats are polling, namely the president, you know, Democrats still continue to turn out their coalition in these off-year elections, which means... But David, I want to give you one more, one more chance. Yeah. They are looking at Harvard, Princeton, Cornell, Brown. They are looking at their schools. Yeah. They are looking at the marches. Yeah. They're looking at UC Davis, and they're saying, what the hell happened to America? And it's yeah, not the Republicans' are, fault. They are, Hugh, but what I am telling you is they're not necessarily deciding, at least yet, that the Republican Party is the answer. That is what I'm telling you. No, that's a fair point. I, I, I think that the Republicans up and down and serious Democrats have to leave that party. That party is diseased. It is gangrene in it, and it will not be able to deal with the moral challenge of our time. Xi, Putin, and Khamenei, unless and until they separate themselves and renew the Republican Party. And in fact, those who left because of Trump ought to come back and get serious because we haven't got time for this. David M. Drucker on X. You read his stuff at the Dispatch. Don't go anywhere, America. More and more people are turning to drugs to lose weight. I think that's a poor choice. I encourage them instead to go to myphdweightloss.com. Generalissimo uh, jumped on that program. My gosh, it's been well, six, over a year, year, uh, 16 months, months. months. Yeah. Yeah. 15 months. 15 12 months. and three is 15 months. So you started, what were you weighing when you started? Uh, I was about, I was rocking about 250, almost. That's a big Dwayne. That was, I was, I was, there, there was, there was plenty of me going around. Yeah. There was a lot of Dwayne then. There was a lot of Dwayne to be had. Yes. There was a lot of Dwayne then. And, and your wonderful wife took you in anyway. And now she's looking around for a third of Dwayne that's missing. Uh, she likes the two thirds of Dwayne that's remaining though. Yeah. But you lost that weight, the healthy, responsible way with my PhD weight loss.com. 864 1900. That's 864 1900. I'm laughing at the idea that the um, the Chicoms who watch my information are going to be very confused because I'm donating this morning to United Hot Zala in honor of the memory of Noah Marciano, the corporal who was murdered by Hamas and at the request of Dr. Oren. And then I'm giving to the Shrine of St. Francis in Boston because my friend Regina Marie Pisa is out there raising money for it. So they're really going to be confused by United Hot Zala and the St. Francis Shrine. Byron York, good morning. Are you going to be down on the mall today as a journalist or as a marcher? I'm going as a marcher, but I'll report on it later tomorrow as a journalist. If I'm there, I will be as a journalist, uh, and I am wondering, how big is your ChiCom listenership? Well, I just assume that they hacked my phone years ago because okay. I have interesting people that I text with, and I never text anything interesting because of that, but the ChiComs are they're everywhere. You know, uh, they're in China. I, I mean, they're in San Francisco, people. too. Uh, Byron, I was just talking with Dr. Oren and with David Drucker. I yep. think 
that there is a going to be a fundamental realignment in the United States. By that, I mean five to 10 percent of people are just going to change the way they view politics as a result of the massacre on 10-7 and the reaction thereafter, your assessment of my assessment. Uh, I disagree with it. Uh, there wasn't even a fundamental uh, realignment after 9-11. Uh, I, I listened to your conversation with David, and I went back and I looked just to refresh myself. Um, in 2002, Republicans picked up two seats in the Senate and eight seats in the House. They went from 221 to 229 in the, uh, in the House. And then, of course, in 2003, George W. Bush started the war in Iraq. So the 2004 election was kind of, you want to change horses. We're in the middle of this war um, in Iraq. And by 2006, the Republicans just got their, you know, butt handed to them by Democrats who took over the House. And then 2008, they just lost absolutely everything. So, I mean, there, you know, there, there was no realignment after 2001. And that was an attack on the United States. And this All right, let me let me give you the contrary assessment. Garrity makes this argument in his book, Voting to Kill. 2002 is the first off year of a new president in a controversial election, and he ought to have lost a lot of seats, but instead he won seats and he took control of the Senate. 2004, he wins re-election because it's early enough in Iraq, and the realignment shakes loose after the war in Iraq is not successfully prosecuted in Afghanistan the same way. So you can lose a realignment, but it happened in 2002 because he ought to have gotten crushed. Republicans ought to have gotten crushed, and they won. Here, it's going to be a reaction, I think, against the AOC wing of the Democratic Party because Jews and people who support Israel have got to realize— they can't trust these people. You know, you have to remember the feeling after September 11th. There really was a lot of national unity. Um, and I think, I mean, I, you know, many, many Americans, me included, thought, we've got to go kill these bastards. And this is, I mean, you know, people were stunned. People were yep. absolutely stunned. And the World Trade Centers, they took down the World Trade Centers. They attacked the Pentagon. You know, what, what happened in Israel, a country which has basically been at war for 75 years, its entire existence. This was an absolutely terrible attack. And by the way, the House has already passed aid for Israel, which the president won't sign and the Senate won't pass. Um, but th th this was in, in no way compares to what happened to the United States on September 11th. But the for fundamental realignment. We're a 50-50 country, right? We're, we're, we're evenly divided. And I think the political no, poll not. yesterday showed 49, 48% Biden-Trump and it polled 15,000 people. And there's a deep divide. So a, a fundamental realignment of 5 to 10% for whom the most salient issue is the support of civilization, in this case, Israel. I have been talking to my older Jewish friends. This is about my older Jewish friends. They do not like Donald Trump. They hate Donald Trump. But, man, they understand what's going on on our campuses. There is an anti-Semitism uh, Lollapalooza underway, Byron, and they are noticing. Well, to say it's a 50-50 country, <clears throat> in presidential elections, uh, one party has won popular vote seven of the last eight times. Um, so, you know, yes, we're a 50-50 country, but the, the, in the popular vote, been electing Democrats a lot. Twice in that period, a Republican got elected losing the popular uh, vote. 
you know, and and as far as this is concerned, this this is concerned. Israel's an ally. It's a friend. It's the only democracy in a terribly screwed up part of the world. And there's a strong support for them. And as I said, the the House Republicans who haven't been able to get much done passed an Israel support bill that the president requested, um, and Democrats won't move it in the Senate. And Biden has threatened to veto it veto the Israel support bill if it came to his desk. Now, but, but Byron, I'm, I'm not, ta- I think that's legislative weeds. I think much more important over at foxnews.com, they have established a silo that collects all the stories on anti-Semitism in America and around the world. Yep. That's actually what people are looking at. I mean, the, the people who are withdrawing in horror from Harvard and Cornell and Princeton and Brown and UC Davis and, and Tulane are withdrawing horror not because of what Congress did or didn't do, but because Jews are hiding in the library at Cooper Union and being told to hide in the attic. That's the fundamental change. That is different. So when you say realignment, like like you brought up with um, Drucker, do you you mean a political realignment, like they vote for a different party from now on because of Yeah, I, I, I think that supporters, for those people for whom support of Israel and civilization is the most salient issue, the folks who, who give and support the various charities in Israel and who believe in the West and believe that we're under assault by barbarism. And how many voters real, do you think fall into that category? Five to 10 percent. It's not a lot, but it makes it makes a big difference okay. in the course of electoral changes over the course of 10 years. Well, I just um, I, I have to agree with David on this. I just don't see that uh, happening because I don't believe it happened even after uh, an incredible, huge, absolutely stunning attack on the United States itself. Well, I, I, I think you have to go back and look at O2 and realize it did happen, but then poor, poor execution does not keep... Uh, free electrons only find valence, valence, I believe that's the term, when they actually get what they need and... We didn't deliver. And then W came back. I mean, this is ancient history, Byron, but I'll ask you. He came back and campaigned on Social Security after he won re-election in 05 as opposed to winning the war. I, it was crazy what they did. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, this is this is something that played a very important role in the, in the election of 2016 in which Trump wins the nomination. And I think a lot of Republicans have to look at the um, – the, the Bush presidency, both terms, and think, well, there was September 11th, and there wasn't a repeat attack. So we give them a lot of credit for there not being a repeat attack. Um, but uh, it, this was a disastrous presidency. He started a major war by mistake, which he admitted in his memoir, uh, and he ended with a financial collapse. Um, this was an absolute disastrous presidency, and the, the ambivalence that a lot of Republicans felt about it had a major role, I think, in leading them to support Donald Trump in 20. 20- I, I think I think you're right. And I think we'd have to talk to Rove about how realignments happen in our loss because he studied the McKinley realignment quite conclusively. And again, the Republicans lost a realigned electorate in 2000 in, in 1928 to 32 because they didn't respond correctly. But right now, Byron, do you sense in, in the disruption in New York City and Washington, D.C. on college campuses, an unnerving and jarring reality about which many Americans were unaware. Well, I think a lot of um, uh, people who, who read 
that there was a lot of just fundamental craziness going on on college campuses. This is apart from the whole anti-Semitism Israel issue, but just real craziness going on on college campuses where people were 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 disciplined over over you know expressing skepticism that a man could become a woman, and that literally you had to call him a woman. Uh, I, I think in, in, in saying that the, the professoriate was was radicalized and and all of the stuff was going on, I think they've had with with the Israel thing, and you come out and you have these uh, pro-Palestinian, anti-Israel, anti-Jewish um, uh, demonstrations. I think they've been stunned at what was going on, and I, and I do think a lot of the, some of the people who've been warning about what was going on in the campuses were saying, yes, it really was going on. Um, how long this lasts, I don't know. Hopefully it leads to more sanity on American college campuses. I, I do think it's stunning. On this, we agree. I think it's stunning. And the consequence, the consequence of getting hit in the face can either be fleeting or enduring. And I think they're going to be enduring in America. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway. I'll be down on the mall today marching with the Friends of Israel and not really marching. I think it's more like standing around. <clears throat> One of those friends is Senator Tom Cotton, but he'll be working today. I don't think he'll be on the mall. Good morning, Senator. Welcome back to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Good morning, Hugh. It's good to be back on. And maybe I should say welcome back to you to the Hugh Hewitt Show after a couple of weeks of rolling up your sleeves for the presidential debate last week. Well, it was a uh, trip into Alice in Wonderland world. All three of my questions were about the Chinese Communist Party, one way or the other, about the ships we need to deter them, about the TikTok that is destroying us, and about the fentanyl that is killing people. Uh, and I hope someone noticed that. But I, I wonder what you thought about the answers on the ship question, Senator Cotton. Well, Hugh, I'll confess I didn't see all of the debate, and I'm not sure <laughs> I saw that one as well. Um, the short answer on, on shipbuilding is, is that we need more and better and more diverse. Um, you know, some people will say that, you know, well, our ships are so much more capable today than they were, you know, 30 or 40 years ago, and, and that is true, but a ship can't be in both the South China Sea and the Persian Gulf at one time. And also, given the advances uh, in defensive technology um, in maritime warfare, probably need many smaller and unmanned ships as well. So more more diverse and more advanced is what we need when it comes to shipbuilding. Governor Christie uh, zeroed in on submarines, and that's what I was looking for is an awareness of the under-the-sea realm. And I guess 40% of our submarines can't even get maintenance now because we lack the shipyard capacity, Senator. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Hugh. Probably the, the single biggest advantage we have <laughs> on the seas is under the seas uh, when it comes to China and Russia. Uh, in our attack submarine force. And unfortunately, we have both maintenance problems for uh, existing submarines, and we're not building new submarines fast enough. Um, I, I'm pushing hard in both uh, potential supplemental spending bill to aid Ukraine and Israel and Taiwan to ensure that our own submarine industrial base gets the funding it's need. And then, of course, in the annual defense and defense spending bills to increase that spending as well. We really need to get up to more than two boats a year um, to, from where we are right now. now. Senator, I want to switch to Israel if I can. You've said on this show many times it would be best if the president would simply not say anything about anything because he's infirm. Yesterday, his comments on not attacking hospitals was like putting a giant sign over hospitals in Gaza and telling Hamas to retreat there. What, what do you make of that? Do you think he actually meant what he said or did he read the card wrong? I, I don't know, but he couldn't be more wrong. Uh, the only person uh, or the only uh, people who are 
violating the law of war in Gaza right now or Hamas by using hospitals and other clinics uh, for their operations. And it's not like you know, the Hamas fighters just ran into hospitals to take cover. They've spent the last 17 years building uh, tunnels and command posts underneath places like the Al-Shifa hospital. Israel has no obligation to steer clear of that hospital. Under the law of war, it only has to give Hamas uh, and people, the civilians in that hospital, reasonable warning, which they've done, and the opportunity to leave before they turn it into rubble. And if Hamas won't leave it, that's exactly what they should do, because you cannot allow uh, terrorists like Hamas to simply cloak themselves uh, in a simply because they're using civilians and hospitals as human shields. And Joe Biden should know better. Uh, and frankly, he should keep his mouth shut if he doesn't know better. Now, Jake Sullivan did the same thing. Now, they've gone back and forth. I really think it's incoherent because on some days they say Israel is abiding by the laws of armed combat and can go into the hospitals and go into the tunnels. And on other days they say we're looking for a deconfliction at the hospital. It's incoherent, Senator. It is incoherent. I, I wish Jake Sullivan and Tony Blinken and Joe Biden would express half as much outrage at Hamas for using hospitals uh, to provide cover for their military operations as they do for Israel, being compelled to enter hospital and other medical facilities to capture or kill Hamas terrorists. Again, uh, it, it's against the law of war to use such hospitals. ISIS tried to do, do this to us uh, in Iraq and Syria, and what our forces did uh, that we supported in that war was do exactly what you're supposed to do, provide a fair warning and an opportunity to leave, and then we went in and took down ISIS fighters. That's exactly what Israel should do in Gaza, and they don't need any more patronizing lectures from people like Joe Biden and Tony Blinken and Jake Sullivan who have no clue what it takes to fight and win a war. Now, I do believe that Israel is utterly indifferent to what world opinion thinks after the trauma of 10 uh, seven, and they're going to do what they have to do to get their people back and to destroy Hamas. I really don't think they care what Joe Biden thinks because America stands with Israel. But I do care a lot about what we're doing about our own military in harm's way in the Middle East. Senator, there you can have an immediate impact. Do you think we're doing enough about the more than 50 injured American service people and dozens, scores of attacks on Americans in the Middle East, which is not getting much attention? No, Hugh, absolutely not. I mean, if you go back to the beginning of the Biden administration, we're up to, I believe, over 130 attacks uh, by Iran's proxies on American positions in the Middle East. Americans have been killed. A few dozen have been injured. And uh, the Biden administration's answer is to continue to strike proxy sites to include empty proxy warehouses. To my knowledge, they have not intentionally targeted a facility with uh, Iran's Revolutionary Guard personnel or other high-value Iranian targets. Um and what they're doing is not scaring or deterring Iran to you because Iran has a strategy to use proxies to avoid responsibility for these attacks. They are validating Iran's proxy strategy. And until we start imposing dire costs on Iran, Iran is going to continue to use that proxy strategy because they see it's working. Um, I have to say, if I, if I could recall, Jim Malone, the uh, character Sean Connery played in The Untouchables, he had an approach to these things that seems to understand Middle East politics a lot better than Joe Biden does, which is if they send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue, and preferably many of theirs to the morgue. Only then will the Ayatollahs get the picture. I used to have that soundbite, but I had a producer back then, and I don't have any more. Senator, um, can you tell me what the strategy of America is vis-a-vis -vis Iran? Because I, I've seen some reports this morning 
I have not verified them, so I'm not going to assert this, that Team Biden wants to get another $10 billion to Iran in a variety of ways for a variety of ends. I, I, I'm not sure if I can believe that. Yeah. It's so astonishing. Yeah, you know, I'll tell you exactly what the Biden administration's strategy is towards Iran after October, the October 7th attack, exactly what it was on October 6th. They genuinely have not changed our strategies towards Iran in one single way. And you're right that it appears the administration is about to renew sanctions waivers that will provide Iran up to $10 billion more in free cash, just like they continue to refuse to enforce the oil sanctions in Iran, which has provided a lifeline to that uh, terror regime going back nearly three years now. Uh, so, no, we have not changed our policy towards Iran one bit, despite Iran's support for and celebration of uh, the terror atrocities, the October 7th attacks. It couldn't be more foolish or more dangerous. Now, I did see that, but I don't know what that means. We are actually, are we going to allow money to flow from third-party banks to Iran in the amount of $10 Neither, billion? Are we? What uh, are we doing? This, this specific waiver relates to uh, payments that uh, the Iraqi government um, has made to Iran, has been frozen, the administration uh, unfroze by giving sanctions waivers a few months ago. Uh, that waiver is up this week, and it would appear, uh, from all accounts, the Biden administration is going to renew that waiver. Um, again, reports have emerged in the last couple days. They haven't denied it either, which tells me that they are going to let Iran get another $10 billion, and they're simply trying to avoid uh, any attention for it, you know, probably hoping the president summit with Xi Jinping in San Francisco tomorrow will overshadow, once again, uh, Joe Biden enriching Iran to the tune of billions of dollars. So we could stop Iran from getting $10 billion and they are choosing not to do so. Is that correctly stated? Um, that is correctly stated on this discrete issue for this week, Hugh, but it's understated the overall situation. We could stop Iran from getting tens of billions of dollars if the president would simply enforce the sanctions against the shipment of Iranian oil. So that, that oil goes primarily to China, by the way, and the president is refusing to enforce sanctions on third-party facilitators like shipping companies, insurance companies, and financial companies that make that shipping possible. So at the same time, Iran is selling weapons to Russia that it uses to kill Ukrainians, and Iran is underwriting Hamas's and Hezbollah's campaign of terror against Israel, we're also allowing Iran to sell cut-rate oil to China. That's how warped and, and silly and foolish our Iran policy is. Iran is uh, all around the world aiding our worst enemies, and Joe Biden is enriching the Ayatollahs. And they're killing Americans. They're trying to. Now, Senator, I try and understand the other point of view so I can better debate it. What is their theory of the case? Because there is no one that I can understand, no theory that I can understand that would give them $10 billion right now, much less well, billions. So, well, first off, you, uh, you have to understand that going back to the nuclear deal with Iran in the Obama era, that the Ob Obama-Biden Democratic Party has superimposed politics in the Middle East. So if you were opposed to Barack Obama's nuclear deal in 2015, then you were wearing a red jersey. That means Benjamin Netanyahu and Mohammed bin Salman and Mohammed bin Zayed uh, and others were de facto extension of the Republican Party in the Middle East and therefore the partisan adversaries of Joe Biden and Barack Obama. That's the first thing you need to understand. Second, 
much like uh, British leaders in the interwar period between World War I and World War II that continued to refuse to acknowledge German violations of the Treaty of Versailles because it would necessitate a response, perhaps a military response, the Biden administration refuses to acknowledge all the many crimes of Iran against America and really against the civilized world because it might necessitate a response, like blowing up uh, a site with Revolutionary Guard Corps personnel in Iraq or Syria, or striking targets inside Iran itself, the way Ronald Reagan was going to do when he blew up half of Iran's Navy for attacking a U.S. naval vessel. Uh, if the Biden administration acknowledges all of these crimes and Iran's culpability, they know that the American people might demand the military response. And that is the one thing that Joe Biden absolutely refuses to do. Uh, last question, Senator. I've been reading a book called The Pope at War, which is based on the Vatican archives that just opened. Uh, Pope Pius XII simply refused to believe how evil Hitler was. Is that the problem? Do they not know or do they know and they just are afraid of the consequences of knowing? Um, I think they probably don't fully accept it. Uh, you know, the <laughs> Obama-Biden Democrats have a very progressive mindset. Uh, you know, they don't believe in anything like a fixed and timeless human nature that is stained by original sin. They believe in the perfectibility of mankind the way, you know, their Wilsonian forefathers did. And therefore, they can't accept, you know, the evil they see in Hamas. But at the same time, if they acknowledge that evil, not just use a little bit of rhetoric about it, they'll be called upon to respond to it. That is the dilemma. Senator Cotton, thank you. I appreciate your taking the time with me this morning. Don't go anywhere, America. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, joined by United States Senator Dan Sullivan, who is also a Marine and also a Cleveland Browns fan. And But for the fact that these are very serious times, we would talk about that amazing victory over the Baltimore Ravens, or the not Browns, as I call them, Senator Sullivan. But instead, I want to go to the colloquy you had with some of your colleagues on the Senate floor a couple of weeks ago. I disagree with Senator Tuberville's decision to put holds on career military and the it's just a disastrous impact on the lives of career military down to colonel and lieutenant colonel and commander and lieutenant commander level. Is anything going on? Is it going to change? Hey, Hugh, good morning. And by the way, first, let me just begin by uh, thanking you for the great job you did at the presidential debate, you know, getting foreign policy, China fully involved in the discussion with our Thank candidates you. is yeah. super important. So, you know, uh, you did a really important op-ed a few months ago on this issue. And, you know, I always be begin by saying I'm as pro-life as they come, kind of like what you said in your op-ed. Yep. Fully oppose the Biden DOD abortion policy that they announced, you know, fully have been fighting them probably more than any other senator for politicizing our military, focusing on things like climate change and everything from their career, not their career people, their civilians, their civilian appointees, not the one and two star generals. So, look, I've been there's no one who's been working this issue harder than me uh, with Senator Tuberville. Right. Um, I've been working with him for months. And one thing we did do uh, didn't get a lot of press, but, you know, the Democrats have been playing with this as well. Schumer wouldn't bring up any members of the Joint Chiefs for confirmation. The only reason we have a full slate of confirmed members of the Joint Chiefs is because Senator Tuberville and I forced Schumer to do it with a parliamentary tactic that he had to accept. So the Dems are as bad as anybody on this. But to your point, uh, Senator Tuberville's tactic right now, it's the wrong tactic, which is a blanket hold. We're going to hit over 450 
one, two, three, and four-star generals by the end of this week. 450, Hugh. Wrong timing. One of the most dangerous times that we've had, um, you know, since World War II. We all know that. And wrong target. That's the key thing. Putting holds on people, you know, flag officers, as we call them, one, two, three, and four-star generals and admirals, who have nothing to do with this. Nothing. And even if they get confirmed, won't have any power to change the policy, it's uh, hurting readiness. But I'll tell you this: it's really hurting morale. We have a we have a real crisis already in the military with regard to um, recruiting and retention, and this is fully exacerbating this. I have been talking. You know, I'm a senior colonel in the Marines. This is my peer group, the one and two star generals. I know a lot of these men and women. There is already beginning an exodus of people saying, you know what, I've done five, six, seven deployments. My family's, you know, sacrificed, and now I'm being stuck and punished for something I had nothing to do with. And so people are starting to punch out, right? At the most dangerous time, we're going to lose a generation of the most combat-experienced officers since World War II. The first guy, so what we did and I feel very strongly about this, and trust me, I'm getting a lot of incoming on it, but, um, you know, it's just frustrating as hell. What we did, four senators, Graham, Ernst, Senator Young, what do we have in common? We're all very pro-life, super pro-life, um, but we're also veterans, right? We know what sacrifices. We know these people. The first guy that I tried, to, Senator Tuberville said, hey, I'll be fine with bringing up uh, these votes one by one. Okay. So we said, we'll do it. We got all night, 450. We'll bring them up one by one, talk about their bios, talk about what's going on. First one I brought up was a Marine colonel selected for brigadier general. And this guy's resume, Hugh, you couldn't believe it. Silver Star winner, uh, multi-hour combat uh, heroism, Purple Heart um, recipient, Navy and Marine Corps combination medal with a combat distinguishing device. This is one of the most heroic guys I've seen. So I said, let's bring him up. Let's promote him right now to Brigadier General. Senator Tuberville, I object. Why are we objecting to American heroes? Why are we doing that? Well, Senator, I got to I got to ask this question, and I, I don't know Senator Tuberville. I don't know if he has military in his life, but detailers work with lieutenant colonels and colonels and lieutenant commanders and commanders for years to put them in the right job so that they get the right experience so they can promote five years from now. And they work with the the one stars to get them into the right billets as two stars and the two stars into three stars. So we're not talking about 450 people. We're talking about thousands because it's actually a much bigger universe where the detailers are trying to arrange for people to get the career experience they need to be the leaders that we must have at times of war and their families. And they're 100%. all frozen. Does he understand 100%. this? Look, your point about the families is so important. And, you know, there was this thing, I'm sure you're aware of it. Most Americans aren't. It's called the Fat Leonard scandal. That was oh, a yes. big corruption. Oh, what a disaster. In the Navy. Okay, it was self-inflicted. You unfortunately had some senior Navy officers who were part of this corruption scheme. It wiped out a generation of admirals and those kind of people with experience that you're just talking about in the Pacific. We're still recovering from this. You know, some people are saying just what's happening right now, to your point, 
it's going to take two to three years to recover. Let me give you another example. of it, It's not just heroes, right? I mean, they're all heroes. When we were on the floor two weeks ago trying to get these confirmed one by one, said, hey, you, you said you'd do it one by one. We'll, we'll bring each one of these ones up one by one. We were reading their bios. One of the things that occurred to me, Hugh, was there were so many of these admirals, one and two and three star admirals, who had incredible submarine experience. Now, to your point, it takes decades to train and bring up an American military Navy officer who understands how to operate and tactically and strategically deploy submarines. You can't do that in one or two or even 10 or 20 years. It takes 30 years to do that. And guess who's scared shitless? I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to say that. Yeah, we'll bleep that out. Scared to death. Guess who's scared to death of American subs? The communist dictator Xi Jinping. That's why I asked about the fleet at the debate. And Chris Christie had the right answer. Yeah, it, it's the submarine force that will deter and, if necessarily, defeat the Chicoms when they come across the Taiwan Strait. Hundred percent. And guess you can't believe how many two and three star admirals with incredible submarine experience who right now are being held our most important strategic players. And Xi Jinping is over there going, "I can't believe my luck. I'm scared to death of these guys," and they're holding them. And as you know, there's also in the military, at a certain point, you, you have a rule. You're up or you're out. Exactly. If, if you don't get promoted within a certain amount of time and you can get an extension to it, but we're starting to bump up against this time on some people, then you get drummed out of the, co- uh, out of the military. So, again, I'm as pro-life as they come. You know, we're taking a lot of incoming. Oh, you got to. But I'm also pro-military. And one of the things that distinguishes Republicans from Democrats, certainly, is our focus on military readiness, but also our focus on military personnel and their families. We care about them. That's a core attribute of being a Republican in the Can United I underscore States something, Senator? I'm, I am pro-life, and I, I believe that the Susan B. Anthony Fund would give me a 100% rating like they give you a 100% rating. I'm absolutely, it is not pro-life to take a lieutenant commander or commander or a lieutenant colonel or colonel who has small children and put them in limbo and keep them between schools and not deliver them at the hospital they're supposed to be delivered at and send their their or extend the deployments of their mothers or fathers much longer than they need to be to cover for billets that cannot be filled because of a hold. It is. And they can't do anything about it. This has nothing to do. So our friends say, well, Biden and Austin can change the policy. They can, but they won't. It is not pro-life to hold hostages. Well, look, here's what I've been asked. And again, I've been working with Senator Tuberville. What's been my approach to this? A, to work with them, right? B, to force Schumer to bring up, you know, high level noms because he was uh, not doing that. So we've been doing that. Like Again, like I said, the only reason we have fully confirmed members of the Joint Chiefs is because Senator Tuberville and I forced Schumer to do this with what's called a cloture petition, which he hated, but we shoved it down his throat. Okay, so that's important. But what's the way forward? All right, if we think it's illegal, they're DOD abortion uh, a policy, then let's sue. Yes. Okay, so we were working yes. last night. Even last night, I won't, you know, I don't want to get too far out ahead of my skis here, but with Senator Tuberville on a strategy, all right, let's sue. 
Okay. Then this is one that I think is really important. Let's switch. Um, let's switch hostages. Let's switch the holds. What do I mean? Right now, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy is up for confirmation. He's the number three guy in the Pentagon. He is a civilian. He matters to Biden and the Biden administration. Let's move the holds off the men and women in the military have nothing to do with this policy and put the hold on the civilian DOD official who's actually in charge of the policy, who could change it in a heartbeat. So that's what I've been encouraging. Switch the holds. Get it off. And by the way, the other thing about this hold that makes no sense, we care way more about we Republicans than the, the military than they do. You never take a hostage that you care about more than your opponent. And so they're like, we don't care about the military, so let them hold it. Let's put the hold on the guy they care about, which is the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. So I'm doing that, and I've asked Senator Tuberville to join me. I'm leading this effort to try to get a lawsuit filed soon. So there's a lot of other ways we can continue to fight this, but we have to recognize that we're not just hurting individual families. This is a strategic risk to the force. Because we're going to lose a generation of the most combat experienced military officers um, that we've had since World War II. And, and we're torturing the their families. Dangerous- we're torturing their family. And I got to tell you, an off ramp, that's a great off ramp. Make it bigger if you have to. Holds for every political appointee in every department. That's fine with me. Because I, I, it isn't Biden administration. Just make it, but not career military. Well, look, one more thing on this. And, um, you know, on the Republican side, there's certain people who are now kind of taken to going after the military. Right. And I'm like, wait, what are you guys doing? Of course, the civilians, you know, Biden has been woke as heck. But I, as I said, you know, what we're attacking career officers now that they're not useful, that they're not important. These are the guys, the one and two star generals and admirals. These are the guys kicking in doors in Fallujah 20 years ago. You are the best we have in America. Thank you, Senator Sullivan. Keep fighting the good fight. I hope you persuade Senator Tuberville. I hope you persuade him. Thank you so much. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned to the Hugh Hewitt Show. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.